Hello, good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois, sitting to my left, your right, Michael Gervolino, one of the associates in our New Jersey Workers' Compensation Defense Practice. Today, we're going to be discussing the Second Injury Fund in New Jersey. Kind of a neat topic. It's a very New Jersey-specific topic. Not a lot of states still have a Second Injury Fund. New Jersey's does, and it's still fully funded. So let's talk about uh, how our clients and you as the employer carrier can get some reimbursement, get your money back from the second injury yeah. fund. You're playing those surcharges. Let's try to get some of that money back. Um, this is the last topic in our New Jersey webinar schedule for the year. Uh, our webinar schedule starts over in April, and we'll talk at the end of this webinar about uh, the curriculum going forward. Uh, if you've missed any of our topics, and most of these topics do build, we're now getting into sort of uh, more and more abstract and uh, more complex uh, uh, topics in workers' comp in New Jersey, you can always go back onto our website. We have an archive of every single uh, webinar we've ever done now, going back now uh, about 30 episodes. And uh, there's all, they also have subtitles, so even if you can't sit there at your desk with the audio on, you can, you can watch it. All right, this is totally live today. Hopefully there will be no audio mess-ups or anything strange today, and we'll be able to um, uh, present this webinar sort of uninterrupted. Uh, absolutely live. Please feel free to ask us questions. I can see the questions popping up on this laptop I have sitting right here to my right. And as we go, uh, we'll be taking note of the questions, and at the end, we'll try to answer all of your questions time allowed. All right, so today we're going to talk about what the Second Injury Fund is. We're going to try to give some dollars and cents examples. I hope everyone has the handout. The handout does not really have any very specific dollar and cent examples. We're going to go through that today and sort of show why contribution from the Second Injury Fund in your high exposure total disability cases is going to be so awesome and why we want to do it and pursue it so strenuously. Uh, we're also going to talk about the common Second Injury Fund defenses, and that's because the Second Injury Fund does have an attorney that represents it. It's a deputy attorney general. Uh, these attorney generals are quite aggressive at defending the fund, just as aggressive as any other adversary that we have. And they want to make sure that uh, we're meeting all the standards necessary to get contribution from the second injury fund. At the end, we're going to talk about our checklist, how we get uh, contribution from the second injury fund, and of course, common objections. So Mike, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let's talk about what is New Jersey's second injury fund. Sure, Greg, thanks. So the Second Injury Fund was enacted in 1923, and what it basically does is it, an employer, when he hires a, an employee who has a prior injury, it allows him to not have to pay on that prior injury if the petitioner or the employee gets injured a second time. Sure. So um, as you may have picked up on 1923, that's right after World War I. So what happened was they enacted this law after World War I because they had soldiers coming back from war and they had gruesome disabilities. They had maybe a missing arm, missing leg, mm -hmm. what have you. So what they do is they come back and they try to work and employers were hesitant to hire these guys because they were afraid that if they hire them, when they have a missing limb, they may come on and they may injure themselves again. And once they get injured twice, they could be totally disabled. And, and now we're on the hook. For all of that. Now sure. we're on the hook for the whole thing, so they're you know they're afraid to do this. So the government they enact this fund to help ease the burden and hopefully entice the employers to hire the soldiers, you know, the veterans, so they have jobs coming back from war. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes when does the second injury fund pay? Right? So they, they will pay, they only like to pay, uh, they don't like to pay. <laughs> right. Uh, let's, let's put it that way. way. Yeah, that's that's they fair. They are they a pretty uh, tough adversary, yeah. and the, the attorneys representing the second injury fund absolutely feel like uh, their duty is to, to not pay, right, to preserve. They the want to protect the fund. Exactly. Right. So they'll only pay if the petitioner is completely disabled, mm -hmm. 
um, and they need to they need to see a measurable disability before the employment. So before he started working for the respondent, he had to have an actual disability. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is the combination of that prior disability and the current disability has to cause the complete disability. Right. 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 So, if uh, I'm sorry. Additional things that we need here, we need the petitioner and the respondent to claim or concede the total disability. Mm -hmm. The second injury fund is not going around looking for people to put the pay out. So we have to, or the, you know, the petitioner's attorney has to claim that there's a total disability. Right, and the way they claim that is by filing that verified petition. Yes. You and I had a little uh, conversation as we prepped for this, and we talked about circumstances when the respondent would actually file the verified petition. It's really rare. It's extraordinarily yeah. rare. And we're actually getting into an example where the total disability would be so so obvious mm -hmm. that maybe the respondent would want to. Yeah. But 99.9% .9 of the time, we're expecting the petitioner's counsel, applicant's counsel, yeah. to file that verified petition seeking contribution from the fund. Exactly. And once someone files the uh, verified petition, we have the burden, along with the petitioner's attorney, to show that the disability before the last employment I'm sure there was a disability before the employment, so we have to prove that he was injured before he ever started working. And lastly, the guy must be totally disabled. He can't be working, he can't be retired, he can't maybe win the lottery and, mm -hmm. and just want to take just me say, out of the beach. I'm out, I'm out, no more yeah, working. So he has to be actually disabled. Sure, sure. So if he is disabled, who pays how? Well, essentially, if the fund is contributing, then the respondent will have to pay a, uh, the portion of the new disability. Mm -hmm. So the second injury, fair. the response on the hook. Sure. Anything after that, after we paid out the new disability, the fund will pay the remainder until the rest of his life, mm -hmm. which is could be very beneficial to the respondent in certain circumstances. Right, and we're going we're gonna to actually walk through some dollars and cents examples now. Um, you'll introduce us to sort of our workers' comp injured employee, mm -hmm. and then I'll sort of talk about the mechanics of payment and how it benefits us. Okay, so this is our injured employee right here. This is Bob. Bob started working for the respondent with a prior loss of a foot. He had mm -hmm. no right foot when he started working. While he's working for the uh, first current employer, he gets an injury. He loses his left foot now. So oh, now, no. So now Double has, amputee. Now he has no feet. Okay. So what happens? Well, in New Jersey, under NJSAA 1534-12C20, um, if you lose both hands, both arms, both legs, both feet, any of the above, then you're considered statutorily disabled, mm -hmm. meaning there's nothing to argue about. If you lose two feet, you're disabled. Right. There's nothing really to And it makes sense. I mean, particularly in cases of blindness yeah. or loss of both hands, absolutely. conceding total disability in those cases, it just, just makes absolute sense. Definitely. So what happens? All right. So let me walk through the math now. We're going to imagine, for the sake of this initial hypothetical, that there is no such thing as the second injury fund. Okay, so we've got uh, our poor workers' compensation Bob here. He's lost both feet. He's statutorily totally disabled. So we're going to hold off to the side all of our issues regarding functional ability, causal relationship. Uh, can is there a job for him? Is he working? We're just going to imagine he's not working and he's lost both feet. What's the math on this? Well, there's going to be an order for total disability, and let me tell you exactly what it's going to say. It's going to say 450 weeks plus benefits to continue for life at the end of that 450-week period, plus any ongoing medicals related to the subject accident. Uh, very uh, straightforward. Now, the initial period is always 450 weeks because that's the maximum permanent disability award in New Jersey. That's 
That's the number. That's as high as it can possibly go. Uh, even though our our chart goes up to 600 weeks of disability, and uh, disability is contemplated in terms of the whole man, 600 weeks is possible. 450 weeks is statutorily totally disabled. That's the longest period that the judge can award. Now, after 450 weeks, what happens? Well, uh, allegedly the petitioner may have to recertify that they are totally permanently disabled. Really, in practice, it doesn't happen. Uh, payments then just revert and go on for life at that point. So um, we can tell you right off the bat that in a temporary, I'm sorry, in a permanent total disability case where the person has a double amputee, you're always getting an award that says 450 weeks plus that you can expect to have exposure of permanent residual disability for life. And the way to calculate that is to use a life table, uh, use a rated age. Um, in the case of uh, Workers' Compensation Bob, our unfortunate double amputee victim, he's 61 years old. Um, we can get an MSA cost projection to figure out future medicals, or uh, some of our clients are really good at estimating future medical, and that's your total exposure. Now, let's put that in dollars and cents. So again, Workers' Compensation Bob, who is our unfortunate double amputee, his average weekly wage, and you can see that in the very bottom uh, left-hand corner of your screen, is uh, $600 per week and his age is 61 years old. So his initial period is still going to be 450 weeks, plus we're then exposed for his life expectancy, which is about another eight and a half years. It comes up to 17.3 years of total exposure, which would be an additional 449.6 weeks, okay? Plus the cost of future medical equals our total exposure, and our total exposure in this circumstance for a totally and permanently disabled double amputee would be uh, $539,400 plus medical. That's a big number. Big number. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about when the second injury fund would pay. And now in this case, I think it's pretty obvious. They should pay. They should pay a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about what I think they should pay. Well, first, we know we satisfied the requirements for second injury fund contribution. Uh, those requirements are set out at 34-15-95. And those columns that are clear in this case is, A, totally disabled, mm -hmm. right? Under Check. section. He, he's totally disabled. Check. Uh, two, had a measurable disability before the last accident, before the last employment episode. Yeah, he was missing a foot, right? However, he lost. It doesn't matter if it's a work accident, a non-work accident. Actually, had a me measurable disability, and he's statutorily totally disabled. So it's quite a simple um, example. Now, how much of a credit should we get, or how much contribution should we get from the second injury fund in this case, where there's a prior loss of a foot? Well, let's go to the schedule. Schedule is quite simple. Total loss of a foot in New Jersey is 230 weeks of compensation. So. Uh, we don't really have to even fight that much in this case. I mean, normally we would get IME medical reports. We'd be arguing about where this uh, petitioner's prior disability falls in regards to the uh, workers' compensation schedule of disability. Uh, you know, look, rarely uh, is the injury as clear and as clean cut yeah, as a total amputation of the foot, right? So I don't think we, uh, you know, most of our examples, it's not obvious. In this example, we should be getting 230 weeks of compensation or contribution from the fund. Let's just imagine, just for the sake of argument, that the fund says his disability prior to the last episode where he lost the other foot is just 1%. So again, a very low amount of contribution from the second injury fund. Again, we're just using this for hypothetical purposes and just to try to give some examples of what 1% means. What does 1% mean, contribution from the second injury fund in this case? All right, so looking at this chart now, I'm going to look at it from left to right. So the, the, on the left-hand side, that top column, it says the example, the rate is $600. It's going to be important, but that's a good sort of number just to use. The middle column is what we were paying 
with no fund contribution. We've already been through that. 450 weeks, which is the maximum initial period, plus 449.6 weeks, which is the life expectancy, right, for the petitioner, and the total exposure in dollars, and this does not count medical, of course, is $539,000. Now, what do we pay if the fund contributes just 1% disability? Well, we're going to pay the 450 weeks minus the 1%, mm -hmm. which comes to 446.5 weeks. Okay, that's our exposure. Then we pay nothing because the fund then takes over payments for total disability for the remainder of the petitioner's life. Again, if they live to a 17.3 year life expectancy, which is what's expected for someone relatively healthy, 60 year old petitioner in uh, New Jersey, um, they would pay, be on the hook for all those weeks, 449 weeks, but not us. So we pay zero. That means our total exposure comes down to only $267,000. So roughly half. And that's for only a 1% contribution from the second injury fund. So in any case where you're seeing, hey, there's a potential for total disability, or look, statutorily, this is going to be a total disability case, your counsel should be looking, your adjuster, your risk professional should be looking for contribution from somebody, uh, and generally the second injury fund in those cases. We should be looking for that pre-existing condition, pre-existing disability, pre-existing medical treatment um, to make that argument. So Mike, how do we do that? How do we get that contribution? Well, as a respondent, Greg, we are very blessed to have lots of documentation. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is provide them with the documentation. Uh, hopefully documentation shows that he had a prior injury, that he's you know, currently disabled now. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, we have to, well, not us, typically as a petitioner's attorney, will file a verified petition, which just claims that he's totally disabled. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to show uh, medical reports finding total disability. Right. Once again, probably coming from petitioners, doctor, not ours. Yep. And we need info regarding Social Security Disability Awards, uh, pensions, uh, prior workers' compensation awards. Mm -hmm. All that uh, is going to be needed. And so then, when does a fund never pay? Mm -hmm. Well, they never pay medical treatment ever. Right. Right. So even though in the future we've got the indemnity off our books, we're still exposed to the medical. Yeah. Okay. So they don't pay for the cost of the lawsuit. They don't pay attorney fees. Uh, they also don't pay for Section 20 settlements. If we decide to s settle the Section 20, they're not involved. Right. Pretty rare in the total disability context, yes, so yeah. uh, it's sort of a no-brainer, but they'll never contribute. Yes. Yep. They do not pay dependency benefits. Mm -hmm. They don't pay uh, partial to, uh, partial total. So if there's the case settles for anything under total, and then we will have to rely on dual credit instead of the second injury fund. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't pay when the last accident is totally disabling, and they don't pay when the last injury progresses into total. Right, so it gets worse over time. Maybe there's a reopener, mm -hmm. and now they're claiming they're totally disabled. The second injury fund is going to have a defense in that case. Yep. And I'll tell you, they're constantly, I mean, they, they're generally staffed with excellent attorneys who are quite aggressive and quite adversarial mm -hmm. in protecting that second injury fund. Um, the common objections I hear from them all the time are, hey, Greg, uh, yeah, I get it that the dude lost his leg in, in the war or something, but really it's the last accident that totally disabled him, yep. right? And they constantly make basically the same argument, which is, Greg, you know he wasn't totally, you totaled him because he was working at the time of that last loss. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I get it. Uh, sure. I, I mean, literally, by definition, everybody who's eligible for second injury fund uh, relief, the employee was working at the time of the last loss. So, uh, really not a good argument. They make it all the time. There's a total last argument. Uh, accident. Sometimes they'll say, oh, you know what? Yeah, this person did lose both legs, but uh, they're not total at all. 
Uh, I think they have great work capacity and they make up these fake jobs like mm -hmm. Walmart greeter. Come on, Greg, couldn't this person be a Walmart greeter somewhere? I'm like, yeah, maybe. Uh, but that's not the burden of the either respondent or the petitioner to show employability somewhere. Okay, particularly in the case like this case where you'd have uh, statutorily have permanent total disability. All right, so we have ways of overcoming those objections, and you were just mentioning document, document, document. Oftentimes, we're very motivated to provide a lot of information to yes. our adversary, petitioner's counsel. Hey, here's some prior medicals. Hey, we'll do some of the legwork. We'll do the subpoenas. We'll get these prior medicals to give them to you to beef up your verified petition yeah, so that we can get secondary fund contribution. Okay. Uh, with that, uh, it is time for us to go to the questions. I hope people have been typing in questions. You don't have to type in questions just about today's topic. It could be about any topic in workers' compensation. And let me come over here and get my cursor. Oops, missed. Okay. Let's take a look. What do we got? Questions, questions. Okay. Uh, Lee asks a question on prior measurable disability. She says, or he says, who determines if the prior injury or condition is a measurable disability? Okay, and I think what Lee is saying there is, uh, what 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 is measurable? Because, and, and let me be frank with you, Lee. Great question, because it really gets to the to the sort of heart of it. You can look to non-compensable, non-work related, and sometimes and frequently even non-traumatic prior. Uh, condition. So someone with hypertension, uh, someone with diabetes, uh, someone with other uh, complications uh, or medical um, conditions that aren't traumatic, that were clearly not work-related, uh, but do impact them in conjunction with this last loss uh, to make them then totally disabled. So that's the argument uh, part of this. And you know, sometimes what we're doing is we don't have a very clean case. We don't have the person who now has a back injury that's totally disabling them, but 10 years ago had a left hand yeah. uh, carpal tunnel repair, and then six years ago had a cubital tunnel of the, of the left elbow, and nine, uh, 10 years ago had a total knee replacement. You sort of stack up all those prior conditions and disability. It's kind of easy to show, hey, this person was not you know, perfect working yeah. unit at the time of the last loss. You don't often get that perfect case. Uh, I wish we did, but we don't often see it. So, yeah. you know, that is where the argument is. I think it's really smart or a good question, Lee, to say who determines um, if that condition was measurable. And the argument that you're always saying is it was fixed, it was measured, it was uh, disabling, and it did impact their workability. So oftentimes this is going to rely on the petitioner's testimony to come in and say, yeah, uh, I couldn't work overtime because I had this other medical condition and I never was able to work overtime because of it and you know now I have this new work accident which is also disabling me and you know you're making these sort of inchoate uh, sort of arguments based on subjective testimony yeah. hey sometimes what you got mm -hmm. right? you, and you know sometimes we call this sacking the fund or attacking the fund because we're just trying to come up with something in this person's background in the case of total exposure of course uh, to point the finger at and try to get some contribution from okay uh, Lee asks, it looks like a follow-on question, also is the prior disability need to be prior to the accident record or prior to the employment with the employer of record? Okay, so, and she says, or he says, uh, that slide is a little confusing, it says the indicated before employment. We just mean before the last employment accident. Certainly, uh, it could be any time in their lifetime. It could be a childhood injury. It could mm -hmm. be a childhood condition. It could be a personal, uh, physical, or uh, medical illness that's just progressed over time. Uh, it does not have to be something that would be compensable. It does not have to be prior to this current employment. So in other words, uh, we have an employee 
who has a car accident, yeah. loses a leg in a car accident, outside of work, has nothing to do with work, you know, currently working for me, and then sustains a new accident for me, loses the other leg. I mean, horrible set of facts. Yeah, uh, but uh, absolutely, the fact that both of those accidents occurred during the same employment would not render us ineligible. Uh, you don't have to be injured in World War One. It could yeah. be any injury. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so I don't mean to make light of that, but that was a good question. Um, all right, and then uh, Jim asked the question, guys, for permanency ratings, what's the New Jersey guidelines? For example, do you use the American Medical Association guidelines? Do you use New York State guidelines? What, what do you use? Well, this is kind of a hilarious question because New Jersey doesn't use anything. It doesn't use the American Medical Association guidelines. It does not have a medical uh, disability guideline schedule. It really has developed as rule of thumb. The standard that has to be shown is a... Uh, functional impairment. Uh, we are a whole man state, which is not me being sexist. A whole man state just simply says means uh, the petitioner does not have to show wage loss or an actual impact on earning ability in order to show a disability. Essentially, in New Jersey, the way to think about or think about any whole man impairment state is that we're essentially compensating for the injury, we're and the uh, uh, the impact on the uh, body part. We're not uh, really taking into consideration loss of wagering capacity. Uh, labor market potential, etc. It's really sort of a, a, a human butcher state where everything is on a schedule. Now, the, the way the doctors apply the schedule is very subjective. It's up to the doctors. They have to show by uh, within a reasonable degree of medical uh, proof that there is an impairment of the uh, the body, uh, not an impairment of the uh, wage earning capacity. So, no, there isn't anywhere where you're going to find a well developed. Uh, uh, manual or schedule for assessing permanent residual disability in New Jersey. It does not use the American Medical Association guidelines, and it's not like other states. Our, our neighbor state, New York, has got what's called disability duration guidelines. Every single body part, every single uh, body system has a very clear way it's supposed to be measured and then estimated, not so in New Jersey. All right, uh, with that, I think we're at the end of all the questions. Not a lot of questions today. Please feel free. Uh, to reach out to us, you can of course always send us more questions. Develop. Um, you can email us questions. We love that. Uh, I just want to let everybody know uh, I do have a new New Jersey book. I am the author of the LexisNexis Practice Guide for New Jersey. You can feel free to contact me if you like a copy of that. Um, these webinars, just a little bit of what we do to reach out to the community. We love to do on-site training for our clients and for our. Uh, members of our workers' comp community. Next month, uh, we'll have another webinar. It, now our webinar series restarts. We'd also like to invite everybody who's watching to come watch our entire New Jersey Workers' Compensation Department as they present at the North Jersey Claims Association. It should be a lot of fun. It should meeting. be a lot of fun. It's yeah, an open bar and a free dinner, and the entire department, so all four of our New Jersey dedicated attorneys are going to be presenting, and you guys are doing trivia night. Doing trivia, yeah. So you can win some prizes. Come on out and join us. Okay, sounds like fun. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Any other questions, please feel free to email uh, Mike or Valino or Greg Lois. Have a great rest of the week. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys.